Well, you've made it to episode five. Here we are. Three Batter Rule, Tom Griscom, David Eichenthal, Tom Lee, episode five of our podcast that we imagined a few months ago might find some purchase in the ground between politics and baseball. Last week, we found out just how much as the Major League Baseball season was postponed, spring training called off. And that seems like an eternity ago. It was six days ago. We recorded, no, five days ago. We recorded our last podcast, and we felt like we just needed to get together again soon. Gentlemen, how are you? Well, uh, morning, Tom. Morning, David. I'm doing great, because every morning when, when I get up, my wife and I can go stand on our deck, and we get to look at the home of the Chattanooga Lookout. And we, we are going to look every day waiting for when those fireworks go off and the first game is played. Now, we know it's a little ways away, but it is kind of a great way to start day and say there will be baseball uh, at some point in the weeks ahead. Uh, I, I don't quite have Tom's uh, morning view, but, uh, <laughs> but we're hanging in there. We're hanging in there. Hey, and, and Tom, let me add, because uh, I did send you guys this note during the week. It was really great. The Major League Baseball figured out we're going to give a few extra bucks to these minor league players. And I thought maybe they say, and, you know, this nutty idea about closing some of them down and getting them out of town. Maybe we rethought it that not now is the right time to tell people baseball is going away. But I'm still waiting for that. Maybe you can help me. I, I'm going to help you by explaining to you how Andrew Yang won the presidential primary <laughs> on the Democratic side. It yes. is, the, you'll remember, uh, the guy who showed up at all the presidential debates wearing math on his lapel, who, who had this incredibly devoted, if not small, group of supporters called the Yang Gang. His central idea was that the government should send everybody in the check of $1,000. His idea was $1,000 a month as a guaranteed minimum income. Everybody said, oh no, can't possibly be done. What <laughs> foolishness, what foolhardiness. What is the proposal now making its way through the Congress, Tom Griscom? It is to yeah. send everybody yeah. <laughs> in check. And even more, Tom, than just a thousand bucks. That's right. Yes. And and in, in fairness now to everybody, I'm not sure why we're interested in fairness at this point, but in fairness to everybody, uh, Andrew Yang said that this is what we should do because there was a calamity approaching on the horizon that our economy was about to be unmade. He imagined it being unmade by economic forces. No one imagined it uh, occurring at this pace with this reason but nevertheless it does feel as though right before our our economy is being remade and there we are sending checks to people david uh, this must be a dream come true well i don't think anything about what's going on right now is really a dream come true but i i totally agree that that we are on the cusp of a remaking of the American economy. And I don't think it's just going to be a short-term remaking. 
for the weeks or months uh, around this crisis. I think I, I think this is one of those pivotal moments in American history. Uh, I may have said this on the last podcast. I, I don't often agree with Senator Bernie Sanders, but he talked about this as the equivalent of World War II. You think about how the American economy changed as a result of that uh that event, I think that we're going to see lots of changes, you, you know, and, and taking it a little bit back to what Tom Griscom was talking about. When you hear people talk about what we now say is social distancing, but some of you may remember that way back when at the beginning of this crisis about a week and a half ago, we were talking about the term de-densification. Uh, a friend of mine, and I think economists in general, are starting to think about the fact, well, what if this whole telecommuting and telework situation works? <laughs> what does that mean for many of the same cities, these minor league cities that tend to be smaller or mid-sized cities in terms of the future of the economy? If I could sit uh, in my home here in Chattanooga and do lots and lots of work with folks around the country on any given day. What does that mean for the future of places that may have lots of good amenities, but may cost a little bit less than, than bigger cities and be less dense? So I don't know. I, I, I don't know if what we're going through right now is, is great news in any way what, whatsoever. But, but it is big news, I think, beyond just the immediate public health risk and economic crisis. Yeah, and, and David, let me, I want to add one piece to that. And you're right. I mean, I've been doing a lot of work this week, but I do some anyway, as you all know, uh, at my home because it's quieter. I do a lot of writing, and that's helpful. But when you stop and think, to your point, if 75, 80, 90 percent of people can work from home and we figure out how to do it, uh, do you go back? Do we see a change in, in you know, buildings and things of that nature? The other one, though, that I want to put in here is, you know, we asked all these uh, children who are in school to go home. We're going to teach them online. College kids, uh, even here in Chattanooga, UTC, Chattanooga State, we're going to teach them online. We really then need to step back and say, maybe as we've talked about over several years, that internet access is sort of like having gas, water, electricity. And we now have the wake up call because if we're going to continue doing a lot of it, whether it's business, to your point, David, or education, uh, we're going to really have to rethink the whole uh, access uh, to internet and that it maybe is a vital service that people ought to have. And, and I think, Tom, I think it's a good point about education. The, the two things that I've been hearing about this week a little bit, particularly from my younger staff members, are A, if anybody wants to make an argument right now that teachers are underpaid and we need to do more for the teaching profession, I'd encourage them to go talk to a bunch of 20 and 30-somethings who now all have their kids at home and are trying to deal, uh, deal with providing home learning for them. I think this may be the greatest boost ever in the history of the teaching profession in the United States in terms of recognizing their value and the extraordinary work that they do every day to ridiculously low salaries when we compare it to other parts of the world. But B, the other thing is, think about 
think, think about the issues around distance learning and around this sort of notion of telework or telecommuting. We heard a lot, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire, around the whole issue of broadband access. We actually heard it uh, during the Senate race here in Tennessee in 2018. Think of how disconnected we would be if we didn't have the ability to do this podcast, the ability to do our work, the ability for some college students in our communities in Tennessee to, to get access to online learning. And very quickly, you understand the whole issue of rural broadband uh, and why it is the water, gas, electric infrastructure issue of our time. I think it's going to be a huge issue once we get back to a presidential campaign. It already was in some of the early primary states. But, but you know, we now have this incredibly vivid lesson of what access to, to broadband really means for communities around the country. And Tom, would you allow me? I know we're, we're, we're not trying to dominate this, for, but wait, one other point. It's also to build off what David was talking about. We need to step back and where we provide counseling. We provide mentors for, and I'm talking more now for at the college level, is to say when we get in the situation like we are now, those services still need to be provided. There still need to be access to them because those counselors at this point know those students who need that extra help, who need that, that reinforcement. And so it is saying it's not enough to say, well, we have counselors in this. It's got to be, and we know how to apply and have those connections, regardless of how we're teaching. My daughter is home on spring break. She very much wants to go back to East Tennessee State University. She's going to go to Johnson City. She's got uh, a, a place to live off campus. But that university, like every other in Tennessee, and I suspect most every other um, soon around the country, has decided no more classes for the rest of the spring semester. Instantly, every faculty member has to be able to teach online, and how they will do that, uh, I suspect, is going to vary across the spectrum. Some will be very good at it. Some won't know what to do, um, and that's not a reflection on them. It is a reflection of the change circumstance. Commercial real estate. We build cities to bring people downtown. One of the reasons we bring people downtown is to live, but the other reason we bring people downtown is to work. And if you have a 20, 25, 30-story office tower that is premised on the idea of everybody coming to the office to go to work, that that is an investment that uh, is not paid off in all likelihood if you built it in the last 10 years. And people are going to have to think very differently uh, it's it. If David's right that uh, telecommuting prompts this uh, revolution in broadband, and I think he is, then nothing, as we know from the 2008-2009 recessionary period, nothing upsets this economy more than uh, even the slightest tremor in real estate, whether it's construction, whether it's uh, the development of real estate. I said to a, a friend of mine in a period of lament some time ago uh, about my hometown of Nashville, I said, well, Nashville's just become a real estate play. Well, this could change that. And and we don't know yet how and to what extent, uh, but this moment uh, could in fact change that. I'll, I'll just roll back one other thing just to demonstrate my age. There is in Nashville 
on Hillsboro Road heading south out of town, uh, an old fire hall. And the fire hall has doors that are barely big enough to get the modern equipment in and out of. But fire hall's there because originally that was a toll booth on what was known as Hillsboro Pike. And a turnpike was a kind of a road that somebody had built and you paid for the privilege to ride on it. Now, eventually, governments would build toll roads, but um, the Internet is not the first public utility that, uh, or the first idea, the first uh, service, if you will, that has become known as a, or, or thought about as a public utility. We did it with roads. We've done it with water. We did it with electricity. And I think you're right. I think, I think this is the beginning of a remake. We know uh, we're recording this by Skype. Skype and Zoom and all the other video conferencing services out there are being strained right now because there's so much use of this service and it is it is changing the way we talk to each other. I put on a ball cap for you guys today because A, it's a baseball podcast and B, I, I knew you would see me and I didn't want you to see my hair as a mess because my barber's closed. So <laughs> I, I, I waited too long to get a haircut. That that part of the economy is not changed. And this is where I want to talk about baseball for a second, because Major League Baseball, minor league baseball, for that matter, especially minor league baseball, is built on an economic model of aggregating people into tight spaces uh, and and having them enjoy a collective experience of watching a ball game. Now, this is not true at most minor league baseball parks where you might tend toward more uh, individual seating. I was reminded recently the seat width at Neyland Stadium at the University of Tennessee is 21 inches. Um, that is close. And, and, and so as we think about baseball going back, how does social distancing, physical distancing work in a model where you need to fill that park with as many people closely as possible? Well, it's a good question. I, you made the transition because I want to share something that sort of gets us in there, too, and how words are are put together to give you in your mind, create this image. The National Baseball Hall of Fame, they put this out and the headline on it says safe at home. That's mm. how they teed it up. It said while the Baseball Hall of Fame and museums doors may be closed, you can experience the magic of the museum from afar. And I want to read a couple quick sentences. For centuries, baseball has been a source of solace during some of the world's most trying times. And now the national pastime is with us to help once again. For so many of us, now is the time to stay at home, help protect our health and the health of those around us. While the National Baseball Hall of Fame and museum's doors in Cooperstown may be closed to the public during this global emergency, there are still many ways for fans of all ages to learn the game's history, explore its connection to global culture and experience the magic of the museum from afar. I just thought I'd wow. share that. I thought it was very timely and it also, but it captures all the things that all of us know and why we're doing this is that's what baseball does. It, it well, does bring you together. And, well, I mean, some, some of the, you know, everybody's trying to, trying to take their mind off of what's going on and baseball has been a great solace 
I think lots of teams are putting out videos. Uh, one of my favorite videos on social media is the highlights of the Mets in the World Series over the years. It's a really short video, but it's a really good video. Uh, uh, but I think to Tom's point, there, there is a question about what does the future of the game look like? Now, I, I think there is going to come a point uh, in the future, particularly when we get to a point where we're looking at a vaccine for uh, uh, or, or for coronavirus, for COVID-19, where social distancing is going to be less of an issue and we'll be able to sit in baseball stadiums again. But I don't know. Do we get to a point where do, who says and this is this is this is going to sound terrible. Who says you have to have 60,000 people or 50,000 people in a Major League Baseball game for it to be a Major League Baseball game? What if Major League stadiums became more of a 10,000-seat uh, affair? It's hard to believe that ticket prices could go up any more than they are, but last time I checked, baseball ticket prices are still checker, still less expensive than football. And you had to effectively invert the business model so that way, way, way more people were watching it on television than were watching it in person. I just want to play for you something that is the fundamental premise. All right. Carrie Hayes, I hope I have this right. But they come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They turn up your driveway. Not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have. Peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. You'll find seats somewhere along the streets. So they sat in their children and cheered their heroes. And they watched the game. And it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick that I have to brush them away from their faces. Ray. When the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. The whole premise of that speech is people will come, Ray. People will most assuredly come. You can't have baseball without people coming, I don't think. Well, but, right. but you may not, but you may not have to have 80,000 people come, Tom. I mean, I think that's the point. See, I heard that and thought back about my own love of the, the game. And, and I don't know if this is true for you guys as well, but it really wasn't rooted in going, going to the game. It was playing the game, right? Yeah. It was being a kid in Brooklyn uh, where, uh, uh, you know, I played, I, I grew up playing baseball on a cement schoolyard, which made sliding hard. But, uh, but, but, but I remember, yeah, the strawberries to prove it. 
Yeah, still. Uh, and, and I remember playing baseball uh, on a schoolyard with my friends. I remember, uh, for for listeners not from New York, these uh, exotic games that we used to play in Brooklyn called stickball, where you would stand in the middle of a busy street and, and hit a ball with the, the broom, ha- uh, Spalding with a broom handle. The even more exotic game, which I was way better at than stickball, which was punch ball because we couldn't afford the broom handle. So you actually had to punch the, the, the Spalding with your fist. I mean, that's my love of baseball comes from there. Sure. I, I love going to games, still love going to games. I find it incredibly peaceful, but, but maybe, maybe the, the focus on baseball is not just about the excitement that we would have of getting back to a minor league or a major league stadium at some point when this crisis ends, but the ability of little kids to go out on fields and hit balls and have a catch and do those sorts of things. That's where I really think the, the love of baseball comes from. Yeah, and let me share one other piece from the Hall of Fame uh, site that I read. We've got kids at home now. We've been trying to figure out how do you re-energize and, and get people interested in the game again. David, to follow your point. Well, there's a whole education curriculum available for parents who are sitting at home now having to be teachers, maybe for the first time, homeschooling, or other teachers who now are delivering that way. But it's assortment of free lesson plans that use baseball to teach math, science, social studies, and the arts for kids grades three to 12. It's all there. And maybe there's a way during while we're going through all this that baseball becomes, which it has, I think it was for me, it's an educational experience as well as something that you can enjoy as a fan, uh, you know, either sitting in a stand or watching or listening to it on a radio. I learned mathematics by doing baseball statistics. That's how I learned algebra, doing handwritten page after page after page of batting averages and earned run averages and slugging percentages literally by rote over and over and over and over. Um, it, 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 there, there is absolutely something to it. Uh, it was, it, uh, I think, the, the French writer Jacques Barzun who said uh, anyone who wants to know the history of America had better learn baseball. And I think that's true. I think I think there is a there's a pris, there are prisms through which we can try to understand the world around us. What is going on in this crazy moment? We talked last week about the 1918 baseball season and how it was cut short by the flu epidemic. And in fact, there's there's a great deal of evidence, though it's all sketchy, uh, that baseball was important to troops in the Civil War. That the, the early forms of the game. Uh, were were played at times uh, when when um, armies were encamped as a way of, of of escape and a way of of building camaraderie and and it is it is a piece of our national life for the last 160 years that I think cannot be extracted from the rest of our history. But we know that. Uh, with great economic change, every time in our history come uh, great changes. Sometimes they're spiritual changes. Uh, the, 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 the great awakening of the early 19th century, sometimes they are changes in the way we work. We've talked about those in the way that we, that we play. 
um, and and in the way that we we see things. My hope is that as we are separated, we we do not become so of our separateness that we want to preserve it. I I still think there is a great value in coming together, and this is the premise actually of the public meeting. This is why the we believe that government ought to work in front of folks. And so one of the challenges of this time, and the state of Tennessee is experiencing this like every other state, is that how do you keep a government, um, not just open, but how do you keep a government engaged in the business of an open <clears throat> meeting where citizens can gather, where citizens can be heard even, um, and, and do that in a way that respects the public health crisis of the moment. How can you even put a city council together uh, at, a, at a time when uh, the president uh, uh, says we ought not have gatherings of 10 or more if we can avoid them? And, and I think this is a very real question. The governor of Tennessee attempted to address it yesterday uh, through an executive order that uh, says, in essence, local governments and state governing bodies can continue to meet essentially in disregard of the open meetings law in Tennessee. Tom, uh, Griscom, David, I'm interested in your thoughts as to whether uh, communities can weather that or have we become so inured to uh, the, uh, the idea that We've got to be there to see it, or we that this idea of this executive order falls apart. Well, let me give you two quick points. Number one, in that executive order, when it was made public, is that the uh, coalition, open the open government coalition, which is basically media types, came right. out in support. And I think it's I think that's people need to understand that this group that questions mm. often about records being closed and access to them and meetings came out in support at this point in time. It also leaves in there this, you know, to be, you know, you really got to look at it and, and there's going to be a look back. So it's not like a permanent change. Second thing is this. I was on the Tennessee Board of Regents for nine plus years. We met electronically. We noticed them. We had media and others on a lot of the calls and we got business done that we couldn't have done otherwise. And we were allowed uh, for people to actually vote, but you, everything came for vote had to be a roll call so people's voices were heard and being registered. So we have in the, at the state level, Tom and David, as you all know, uh, we've practiced this and it's worked. And it's now saying, okay, we're gonna extend this down to the local level. Let's see how they do. And I hope they perform and don't take advantage of it and realize that maybe this is something now that we ought to extend on a more permanent basis when we come out of the situation we're in right now. Well, I, I have to tell you, I've never, uh, in, in the time that I've worked around uh, state government, I have not seen a week more surreal than this last one where the Tennessee General Assembly took the extraordinary posture of meeting. Um, a, a, if you watched it on television, it looked like a regular meeting of the, uh, of the legislature. The senators were in their seats. The representatives were 
uh, in their committee rooms. And from a televised standpoint, it looked very much like regular business, except all the seats, as we know, were empty uh, because of the public health exigency. And uh, in fact, we should all be thinking about the folks who worked in that space. Uh, uh, every member of the legislative staff uh, is now on a, a, a two-week uh, break. They've, they've asked everybody to quarantine for two weeks because there's, there's some sense, nothing medical, nothing scientific yet, but there's some sense that working together in that closed space in this time right now may have put, uh, may have put some folks at risk. And we, just, we, we hope not. We're going to wait and see. Uh, but, but the idea of open, uh, David Eichenthal, you see city governments all over the country the idea of open uh, is, it seems to me, more than just can you watch it or can you listen to it. Uh, it, it seems to uh, have a kind of participatory quality about it. That's not in the law. I wonder if it's in the expectation of folks, and I wonder what that means uh, going going forward for how we engage with our government. So I, I think we talked a little bit about this last time as well, I don't have any problem with the conduct of meetings uh, online and the ability to vote online and do all of the things that Tom talked about. But I think you're right. The real issue is around the engagement of the public in these meetings. Now, I've spent a lot of time at a lot of city council meetings and a lot of other public meetings in, in, in my career. And uh, I, I can't think of a lot of occasions when uh, the, the, the public input part of the session has been influential in terms of, uh, of an outcome in, in, in any real way. But when it was, it was very influential. It was what happens when 100 people show up in opposition to a bill and I think we could still deal with that with the same sort of participation online. What we can't deal with as easily, I think, is the ability of three constituents to come up to their member of council outside of the room and say, here's why this is really important to me. And, it, it, you know, it, maybe this is a, a way to end it sort of where we began. You could do a lot of things online and we could do this podcast via Skype and I could do all sorts of business meetings. But even with video conferencing, even with constant flurries of text messages and emails, there is something to the one on one conversation in the same room and in the same space that that still makes a difference. So I, I don't know that we could completely compensate for the loss of that. One more thing, though, Tom, that I'll say, because I think it's important as we broadcast or as we record this on Saturday morning, maybe the other solution is uh, not just to ask the question of whether or not we could get just as much access and openness by putting meetings online as we can in person. Maybe the right question is, can we expand the number of meetings that the public gets to watch? I'll tell you, I'm sitting here incredibly frustrated by the fact that I think one of the more important decisions that's going to be made about the future of our economy is going on in Washington right now about the nature and size of the economic stimulus bill. 
And it's being negotiated by a bunch of senators in a room that I don't have a particularly good window on. And quite honestly, I don't know that the media has a particularly good window on it as well. Those are huge decisions that are getting made. And they're not just getting made in a closed setting to uh, to members of the public who are there, who aren't there. They're getting made in a closed setting to members of the public who would be there. So maybe there are ways to preserve the openness that we have using technology, but also expand it by giving more of the public a view of what's going on with our Democratic elected representatives. Yeah, and to add on that, we talked about this before as well, Tom and David. We, we're getting ready to open up in Tennessee this access for local governments. Somebody needs to spend the time and record reaction. How did it work? What could have been done better? Should we continue it? The same thing that we've talked about when universities go online and start trying to teach 100%. What did they learn? I worry that we we now all of a sudden decide that we can conduct these meetings, which I, I support, that we ought to be able to continue doing the business of government. I think that's important to reassure people. But we also ought to have somebody or body sitting there observing what would we have done different? What could we have done different? Uh, what maybe, and that gets factored in as to whether this continues or it was a one-time experiment. Uh, remember, our city councils, our county commissions, our state legislatures, for the most part, legislatures are part-time uh, persons. They, they're offering their service. Uh, it's not a job. Uh, at least it's not supposed to be. And, and that means that uh, none of them is expert in public policy. Uh, even if they dig into a particular area, uh, they they rely upon uh, lots of people coming to them, and they have to be very good listeners to do their job well. And that means access, and that means people. So, if if the future looks something like what we just saw, then we're going to have to figure out alternative ways of of putting not just ideas and advocacy, but information in front of lawmakers. And and doing so in a way that's compelling and interactive. I think that's the key, is interactive, uh, so that uh, frankly our communities can trust what's happening and the folks who are making decisions can make good decisions. Well, you've done it again, as our as my heroes anyway in the old car talk show said. You you've, you've wasted another perfectly good forty minutes listening to three batter rule. It's our not only great honor to do this for you, it's, it's a lot of fun. We hope it's a lot of fun. Find us on Facebook. Find us through social media. Please rate us where you get your podcasts. It helps people find us, and it tells people uh, that you think what is going on here ought to be heard by more folks. Great to be with you. As events merit, as more news happens, we'll be back soon. So long, everybody. <laughs>